So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, everybody, and welcome back to a uh, post-spring break for this mama and um, I guess, Erin, you're kind of technically sort of on spring break this week. My own spring break. Your own spring break. Yes, yes. Well, um, while you're sunning and tanning at a tropical beach, we will. Um, <laughs> I'll, be, 
I'll be at work in Florence. So huzzah. <laughs> have fun. Have have a drink with a little umbrella for me. How about that? <laughs> I will. Yes. Most excellent. Well, um, everybody, we are today we're covering something that Aaron and I feel really passionate about, and that's the intersection of um pediatric feeding disorders and a neurogenic condition. The backstory of this is both of us, I mean, all of us, at one point in time, we get a kiddo and you get the referral and it just says behavioral feeding aversions, or you get the kiddo that's just out of the NICU and you don't have the full picture because a neonatologist may not have referred out to genetics or referred out to uh, GI because at the time they didn't recognize that there was a problem or uh, they had other pressing matters, right? And those of us that work in the home health world, the private practice world, we get all these signs and symptoms, but we have to do that root cause analysis to figure out how it all kind of builds upon each other. And that keeps happening. And we keep finding these kiddos, maybe they find us, that have genetic conditions that we're not familiar with. I have one in my caseload right now that I'm just trying to get the pediatrician to send up to craniofacial team and genetics, and um, they don't think anything's wrong. But um, Aaron, is that a fair summation of how, how how's it been for you in the last couple of weeks? At well, work? you always say things have come in threes. Well, people say things yeah. come in threes, but yes. I remember having like three evals, three weeks in a row of patients that were around two, and. So, like very significant red flags for something genetic and no one sent them anywhere. And so, you know, a patient comes in and they're, it might even be they're just having a little bit of an issue with feeding. The pediatrician recommended coming to see you and all of a sudden you either see the child and you're like, oh, we have distinct craniofacial abnormalities or facial features or oh, we had this very significant cardiac condition. And you're like, why did the cardiologist not send you to genetics? Why has the pediatrician not noticed these abnormalities? But why do I, am I always the person that has to notice these things? And I think sometimes with genetic syndromes, it can be a very hard referral to make because it's so alarming to parents and for some of these kiddos it it the symptoms may not seem as significant to like parent or pediatrician if that makes sense because it's subtle yeah like we get these symptoms that are subtle or yes and also it's a very hard thing to say to a parent I have concerns with facial features of your child. Like that is, is a red flag to me to send them to, like that's a hard conversation to have because you're like, yes, your child is beautiful and wonderful, but these distinct facial features are a red flag for something genetic. Okay. So before we go there, let me describe some of the facial features that would be red flags for making a referral. And then I promise we'll get back on track in the order. So 
There is a there is a pattern that we find in in the world, and it's a repeating pattern. It's called the Fibonacci sequence. You can find this in the pattern of a nautilus shell, in the pattern of sunflower seeds. A nautilus shell was my sor- I don't know my sororities. Um, like that was our thing was a nautilus shell. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that they had like token objects. Oh, they do. Yeah, I'm not going to go into all the things. You just don't need to know. (laughs) (laughs) See, I was not in a sorority, so I'm like, wait, I'm so confused. Like, no. Okay, wait, where was I? Sunflower seed nautilus shell. Yes. Yes, Okay, so it's it's okay. This moment needs more coffee. Spring break, I'm jealous. Okay, so uh, there's the repeating pattern, right? So we find that symmetry across all, all of the world in facial features regardless of ethnicity or background, we all should have symmetry. So if you take a pencil or, and don't, I've accidentally stabbed myself in the eye demonstrating this. If you take a pencil and you take it to the corner, inside corner of your eye where it meets your nose and hold it straight down, that should be symmetrical with the outside corner of your lip. Okay. So just line it straight up and ta-da, that should be symmetrical. Your iris, if you then switch the pencil so it's horizontally, then your iris should be symmetrical to the tips of your ears, the pinna, right? This is this is tip number one. So when I, I see that the ears are downward, they're slanting, I mean, yes, it could have been caused by torticollis. However, those are red flags. Then you have ear pits, which look like little bitty... I don't know. It looks like a little, um, it looks like somebody, like a Pillsbury Doughboy button, right? That little, right there. It, it's a little ear pit or an ear tag right at the base of the ear or just to the outside of it. It looks like an extra piece or flap of skin. Those features, red flag for me to send a child to genetics. Erin, what about you? What are your, some of your favorite red flags? Oh, not just facial features. Um, yeah, face, give what other facial features do you think of? I mean, aside from like going through all that, like they have very like drooping eyelids. Yep. Anything, even like nasal, whether it's like wide bridged or very narrow. Sometimes, like I see, you see a lot of uh, micronathia in a lot of our genetic kiddos. I'm trying to think. And What's so funny is for some, like it is very subtle, but when you start to pick up on it, it, it can be so distinct. Like it's one of those things where once you start to see these facial features, like a a kid will walk into the clinic for an eval and I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't react, but in my head I'm like, okay, some, something's... (laughs) Something's going on right away where someone else might be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yep. It's 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 like hearing Laringo Malaysia. Once you hear it one time, yeah. you can't then hear it. Like yeah. same concept. Also, to those of you that don't live in South Carolina, we all both just have allergies. The pollen to the point of like a lot of my patients will be like, stupid pollen. Because they're just <laughs> They're just, they're just so they just know that this is what happens. I have had many a COVID test this week for a multitude of reasons, specifically going on vacation. But yes, the congestion is very much 
allergies, which took me down. Yeah, 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 it did. It took you down bad. <laughs> Poor little bear's eyes look like somebody sucker punched them because they're so swollen. And mm-hmm. oh, I just, I'm itchy. Yes. Okay. All right. So now let's get back on track. So those are our red flags for genetics. And that's... To facial feature wise, there's a lot more. Yeah. Yes, there are a lot more. But those are... Again, I cannot tell you how sometimes they're so subtle and then it's the hindsight and you hit it head on. And also we talked about this last time, or I think the last time we talked about it, we, I bring this up all the time, but it can be very frustrating to me when people will make comments like, well, why does it matter as much? Or, And because now autism is thrown around so quickly, I have a lot of pediatricians that will say, oh, this child probably has autism. And they will get an autism diagnosis. And I am very careful to say to parents and other clinicians, you have to be cautious, especially with with that autism diagnosis, because a lot of times it then equates with not pursuing other diagnoses because it gets blamed on the autism. Yes. And the importance of a genetic diagnosis is that there are so many symptoms or things to look for when you have a specific diagnosis that you would never look for unless that was, they were given that. So like certain diagnoses have kidney problems, cardiac issues, issues with calcium levels. Like we'll talk about some of those, but unless you had that diagnosis, that child would never be sent to cardiology to take a look, or they would never be sent to endocrinology or urology. And so it is so important if you're noticing those signs, because the way our genes work, like the connections on certain genes aren't something that's intuitive. You wouldn't know. So Michelle and I share a kiddo or we, we, I saw a kiddo that she now sees that had very, her symptoms didn't make sense. Like what, what physicians were seeing, it's like, how are these things connected? And they didn't realize until they had that genetic diagnosis that super, super rare, but that's why it's important. And if it's progressive or terminal, that's completely alters your plan of care. Okay. So pediatric feeding disorder, thanks to feeding matters, we have a concrete diagnosis for pediatric feeding disorders. So I'm taking it straight from feedingmatters.org, their website, what is a PFD? Pediatric feeding disorder is impaired oral intake that is not age appropriate and is associated with medical, nutritional, feeding skill, and or psychosocial dysfunction. Conservative estimates, uh, conservative evaluations estimate that a PFD affects more than 2.3 million children under the age of five with a prevalence of one in 37 kids, y'all. That's one in 37 kids. So if we quickly do the math... (laughs) That, which I, I hear you laughing because I'm really slow at math and Goose is really fast. And he's always like, hey, Bob, what is 52 divided by like eight? And I'm like, bleh, bleh. <laughs> but um, that's a higher prevalence than ASD by the numbers. So that's why we need to truly understand what a pediatric feeding disorder is. So basically... You remember when we were in school, I remember there was a boy that I went to school with and he could not let his foods touch. And then one day he just quit eating at school and would only eat at home. Those are all red flags. That's a psychosocial impact, right? He did not have an impact with um, oral skills, but it was the psychosocial piece. And 
that that I I always wonder what happened to that kiddo. I mean, he's a thirty eight year old man somewhere, but I yeah. always wonder. All right, so let's talk about what a neurogenic condition is. So, a neurogenic condition, and this was not a term that um, I was super familiar with. It's a uh, a neurogenic condition. In short, is a neurologic condition that is caused by a genetic condition. Does that? Am I explaining that well? Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. Pretty self-explanatory. Yep. yep. And I have found, unfortunately, with certain diagnoses, and you were talking about ASD, especially with my little ones, I have a diagnosis of Down syndrome, that I, I can't tell you how many pediatricians are like, oh, well, it's just normal for him to be constipated. He has Downs. Right. Like, There's yeah. so many things that are wrong with that statement and with how you said that statement. Yeah. He is a wonderful little boy who happens to have Down syndrome. And he has constipation, but this is, I mean, why is there constipation? So yes, and it turned out for that little guy, he had hypothyroidism, which was, yes, that was in part triggered by Down syndrome, but the hypothyroidism, one of the signs and symptoms to all the women in the audience that have hit like 40, one of the leading triggers and signs of hypothyroidism is constipation, ladies. So go get your thyroid checked. <laughs> Make sure it's producing all the hormones. I should probably get my thyroid checked, Aaron. <laughs> but hypothyroidism. Okay, so let's let's break down a couple of case studies on how a, um, a neurogenic condition, a genetic condition, or a neurologic condition can cause a PFD from a, let's start with GI tract. You want to go through um, one of your case studies first, lady? Oh, yeah. Do we have to start with a GI tract? We don't. We don't have to. We start. We start. You start and we'll go from there. How about that? So I, one of the syndromes I want to talk about today, and we have another episode from a while back that we went through a bunch of various um, genetic syndromes as Mm -hmm. well. And so you can go back and listen to those. We'll talk about some different ones today, but one I was looking at um, Williams syndrome, which mm-hmm. I treated um, a patient with Williams syndrome, but not for feeding um, because she had kind of overcome those feeding difficulties at the point that I was seeing her. But it is also it has a couple other names: Williams Buren syndrome, Buren syndrome early hypercalcemia syndrome um, because a lot of these patients can have uh, issues with their calcium levels. And we know this in adults so well, but I think we forget in pediatrics, like how much that can impact your um, overall, like patient's overall state, how much it can impact their, uh, you know, neurologic symptoms as far as those differing levels. I I have a patient right now, this is a a slight tangent, that has Tatton-Brown syndrome. I think I'm saying it right. Um, Super rare. It's not that, I don't know if it's as rare, but they literally just were able to develop testing specifically for it. And a lot of the issues with that can be various levels of certain nutrients in the system. The which can so greatly impact behaviors. 
And so this child is having to go through so many detoxes because essentially there's so much in her system that is so toxic to her. And that is why we've been having so many behaviors and so many difficulties concentrating and so many, just so much frustration because essentially all these toxins are going into her bloodstream and going to her brain. And so we can't forget it. Mm -hmm. And Mm. like, it's, it's a lot. But we we have more of an answer. We were wondering where these behaviors were coming from, and they ran more testing, and this is something that she has. But a lot of kiddos with Williams syndrome can have like low birth weight, again, low birth rate, failure to thrive, going to have issues with feeding. Um, when they're infants, they can have a lot of vomiting, gagging, diarrhea, constipation, and that elevated level of calcium, hypercalcemia which can cause difficulties with appetite, irritability, confusion, weakness, easy to fatigue, abdominal, muscle pain. So like because these children have difficulties with calcium, that can cause all of these problems. And that's important to look for. But for some reason, their levels of calcium can level out around 12 months. So for our children with Williams syndrome, that tells me they're going to likely have more difficulties with feeding as an infant and hopefully yeah hopefully when they get the calcium straight they have less difficulties with that and Williams syndrome I mean a lot of these syndromes are very distinct but like Williams syndrome has very very distinct facial features they have microcephaly very full cheeks a broad forehead and then puffiness around their eyes and a very broad nose so you'll you once you've had a child with Williams syndrome, you can very much pick out other children that probably have Williams syndrome. Some have some dental abnormalities, um, like small teeth, um, upper and some malocclusion, which as they get older, that can impact their oral sensory skills. Overall, like a lot of children may be delayed in a lot of their skills and Congenital heart defects can occur in approximately 75% of children with Williams syndrome. Check out Williams Syndrome Association, y'all. It's Their website is williams-syndrome.org. They've got like a ton of resources. Continue, Erin. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I just wanted. But like congenital heart defects, pulmonary artery stenosis, and or septal defects. So also... If you get a child that has a congenital heart defect and they haven't been tested for something genetic, they need to go to genetics. Yes. Because that's just a huge red flag. And so, but there are a lot of times where cardiology won't send to genetics. I mean, they're really focused on if it's something that's severe enough that they're, you know, cardiology is, they're getting surgery or something going on. Sometimes that's, I mean, every office is different. Every um, physician has a different um, automatic. So just kind of keeping that in mind to make sure to ask, don't assume because I've assumed a lot of things in the past and then realized that that's not the case. That referral didn't go anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's very rare. It affects males and females in equal numbers. Um, and the prevalence is approximately 10,000 to 20,000 births. Something just to note about Williams syndrome that doesn't really have to do with feeding at all is that a lot of these patients have like a very, very friendly uh, phenotype. Like they're, they 
kind of similar to Down syndrome. They're very outgoing, but these children are also very talkative. And hyperactivity and ADHD, which if you've worked with children with Williams syndrome, this is very accurate. The patient I worked with was like, we did teletherapy and it's like, oh, getting distracted by the dog in the background, having trouble sitting at the table, constantly needing to be directed. Oh, we need a dance party break. Oh, we need to put like, it's just, we were, we were constantly all over the place. Like I, I mean, they're very, very, very fun to work with. There's one patient that uh, someone sees in the clinic that I work at and it's constantly, hi friend. Hi friend. How are you? How's your day going? How are like, like lights the entire room up? I love that. Yes. Mm hmm. So it's for them, I think the big things to look for are, I mean, we're overall being delayed in feeding skills. So that's something that you're going to have to work on, but like making sure to get those levels checked and to monitor for any of those cardiac conditions, because if 75% of cardiac conditions, we're going to have fatigue, we're going to have issues with uh, weight gain and growth. And so you start with typically with some of these cases. I mean, not just Williams syndrome, but like you get a kiddo, they don't come home from the hospital with the diagnosis right out the gate. And normally, one of the first referrals is to a CLC, to a lactation consultant, because they're having, um, as Aaron would say, work of breathing or fatiguing at breast, or they come in and they're having weight gain right after a baby's born. You've got like, couple day checkup, then like two week checkup right. and like four week checkup. And they're just not gaining the weight. So speech gets brought in. Again, I go back to we're relying on the physician, the pediatrician listening with the stethoscope to rule out murmurs in the heart. Right. And yeah. when was the last time, how old is that stethoscope? How old was that stethoscope? Um, how good is that pediatrician's hearing? And if you get the referral and you see labored breathing increase the the child's fatiguing out um if you can yeah. and you can feel their little ribs if they're going down to the point that they have left clavicular breathing and they're pulling in their intercostals like that's not safe that could be a cardiopulmonary component their heart is working so hard that now it's impacting their respiration and bad things can happen in short well and the thing is that especially now I mean at the at the hospital here genetics isn't going in so they're running some because of COVID and also so many of my patients are having virtual visits for the first time with genetics which I get it but hold the baby up and have it like let's I mean it's not super functional when you're having to look at such distinct features over tell or you know over telehealth and so Mm -hmm. that has definitely halted some of my patients diagnoses because of that inability and because of of COVID limiting care so much which is very frustrating yeah that's also a factor that like in the NICU they're I mean they're at least where I am they're not going in we, we raise these real life concerns because the, you need to know that we all face these challenges and we all feel that same frustration that you feel, honestly. I mean, I just, yeah. Yeah. It's been, a, it's been a couple weeks for us and like, <laughs> yes. it's, it's hard when you feel like 
your patient is just getting passed around from physician to physician and and you're you have a you literally have a differential diagnosis or you're thinking it's one specialist versus another specialist and one they go to two doctors visits i may not be talking about a, a patient that i'm seeing they go to two doctors visits in a week one specialist says it's the other and the and the other specialist says it's that like they're blaming it on each other and you're sitting there the clinician and the family being like okay well what what do we do are y'all talking because you're literally we are at a loss and so just keep fighting the fight because that's all i can tell you <laughs> okay so with williams syndrome you also there is a significant component to constipation with those little mm. guys and so constipation driven by poor innervation that's caused by a genetic condition that has to be addressed. And yes, there are not every child should be placed on periactin or Ariped, but there are options available to help stimulate the GI tract because if the child cannot get the stool out, they will not want to put the food in, right? That's just how it works. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a condition, when you finally get the diagnosis, you need to start researching it hard because if you have a child that's known potential risk factor for constipation, okay, so is that, why do they have constipation? Is it low muscle tone? Do they have, or is it because they're at an increased risk for Hirschsprung's disease now that we have a diagnosis? What are the comorbidities associated with that diagnoses that you will now need to advocate for because yeah yeah they well I was gonna say like we're not you know we're saying obviously stay within your scope of practice but it is okay to mention concerns of certain diagnoses or certain tests because I find a lot of times especially with GI like they'll run the basic test but until you're spewing concerns of certain diagnoses based on their genetic syndrome or what you've seen, it, it, it kind of pushes a little bit, um, to possibly run those tests. Uh, cause I've had, you know, certain patients go in and they're like, we've run everything when in reality they tried a pH probe and have tried medicine and they haven't run tests to further diagnose why this is going on. So as Michelle says, being the squeaky wheel can be helpful just to like, just to get these differentials kind of on their radar, I guess. Not that they're not because they're GIs, but from at the same point, they might do that. Well, it's, it's their syndrome. It's because they're medically complex. This is just what they have to deal with, and it shouldn't be. Okay, let's go. What, what's your other case? Because I got one I want to do at the end. I recently picked up a patient with Noonan syndrome, a female actually, which is more rare than than affecting males because Noonan syndrome is also called male Turner syndrome or female pseudo Turner syndrome. So they tend to have a broad webbed neck you'll see, which is very distinct, a low posterior hairline and a typical chest deformity and short stature. So a lot of these kiddos are very short and it's, it's, you can just tell their neck is very wide in comparison. A lot of them have wide set eyes, which we see in a lot of our kiddos with genetic syndromes. 
skin folds that may cover the eye's inner quarter, inner corners, also called epicanthal folds. I hope I said that right. They have micronathia, a depressed nasal root, a short nose with a broad base, posterior rotated ears, and they do have a distinct abnormality of their um, sternum, and some have scoliosis. Most of infants with Noonan syndrome do have cardiac deficits, um, such as obstruction of proper blood flow from the lower right chamber of the heart to the lungs, um, pulmonary valvular stenosis, and thickening of the ventricular heart muscles, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They may also have malformations of certain blood and lymph vessels. And this is a lot of this information we're getting is from rarediseases.org, which is wonderful. They may have blood clotting and platelet deficiencies. For males, failure of the testes to descend into the scrotum by the first year of life. I, the patient that I treat has a lot of uh, urinary issues, but there is a very large range um, as far as the severity of even the facial features that you'll see. And I've, I mean, the patient I'm working with, I've only worked with very slightly because they had to have surgery soon after I saw them. So from a, like a personal standpoint, I don't have as much like I have information on case history, but not as much on like treatment, but, um, they talk about how like later in childhood, their face may begin to appear more triangular and the neck lengthens, causing more webbing to appear. If you notice that when they get older, things to also look for in Noonan syndrome. I mean, we have cardiac conditions, so we're going to have a lot of times feeding problems, failure to thrive. A lot of them are very short for their age. Yeah. We, we throw failure to thrive out there, but like, y'all, failure to thrive is a fancy word for when they're like, yeah, so we're just not doing so great, but we may not really know the why. So when you get a referral for failure to thrive, okay, well, why are they not gaining weight? Why are they not growing at the rate that they should? So failure to thrive is like a fabulous catch-all. Well, it's like a catch-all, but it's similar in a way of like, you know, pediatric feeding disorders is a diagnosis, but there's so many different factors as to what their pediatric feeding disorder is. Yes. Yes. And okay. Soapbox moment. I had somebody tell me just recently, okay, well, you just treat feeding and I can do the dysphagia. And I was like, oh, oh, but friend, yeah. no, 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 no dysphagia is under the umbrella of a pediatric feeding disorder that would fall in like that little medical subsection. So yes, 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 yes. A oropharyngeal dysphagia and esophageal dysphagia can result in a pediatric feeding disorder and it's okay. Shell can help with the dysphagia too. <laughs> but like, I was like, no, 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 no. We're, we're okay. Thank you, but no, thank you. Service is not, not needed. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> Well, they wanted to electrocute the kid's neck. So, sorry, that's my um, layman's term for why we should probably not utilize um, neuromuscular stimulation for children that cannot comply with a one to two step direction or say, hey, that feels uncomfortable because, you know, age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
big soapbox there. Okay, I'm sorry. Squirrel. No, it's okay. <laughs> we think about too with it's like 20 30% of patients with Newton syndrome that have um, blood clotting defects, which is something to think about. I think with our kiddos with like surgery or if they've had an injury, they may have either like prolonged bleeding time. They may have just some difficulties with that isn't as much impacting feeding, but just something to think about with that. You know what I mean? I mean, you can probably speak more to that. I feel like you have more experience. Okay. So I go back to vitamin K is one of the main components for clotting and vitamin K, your body actually, for lack of a better phrase, metabolizes and absorbs vitamin K in your large intestine at the very end, in your colon. And so, um, thank you, Gulp. Everybody go read the book, Gulp by Mary Rich. It's a lovely book with the history of the alimentary canal, sphincter to sphincter, and it's hysterical. But it makes sense that you have a little one with known GI issues that's having clotting issues as well when they literally go hand in hand. If you're having difficulties with your colon and with your large intestines, your body, the, that can it, how is it actually absorbing vitamin K? And I know there's so much more to clotting than that. But when I hear that, when somebody tells me, you know, like, oh, well, you know, they're at risk for, you know, um, you know, hemophilia runs in the family or they're at risk for uh, those factors. I just, I immediately go back to, okay, so what's going on with their intestines? Stool sample collections are not a pleasant experience for parents, but y'all, there's truth in poop. So the experience is uh, they normally have a container. I kind of want to throw up just describing it, but they have a container and they collect stool samples for three days and it goes into the same container and then they ship it off and they can run all a lot of analysis on it. But that's um... Well, and speaking of poop, like <laughs> these patients, these patients also may have difficulties with their lymphatic system so they may have like it may be underdeveloped or they may have uh, widening of the lymph vessels within the lungs it can impact loss of protein during intestinal absorption if they have intestinal I'm going to butcher this lymphangiectasis so infecting their lymph their their lymphatic system of their intestinal system which is something like that's just something that I feel like we don't like that this is a prime example of a diagnosis of Newton syndrome how when would anyone else really look at that so keeping that in mind as far as digging deeper I mean if they're having trouble absorbing protein could that you know, if they have a failure to thrive diagnosis, is it because they're having, they're eating a lot of protein and they're not absorbing it and they're not getting the nutrients? Um, just other things to think about. But And what's the source of the protein? I, I go back to, like, we put these kids on formulas, like they get, when you have like right. a failure to thrive diagnosis, oftentimes physicians, well-meaning, will just start throwing like high fat, high calorie formulas at them, but they tend to be like sugar laden and not a ideal source of protein or ideal source of 
synthetic formulas not necessarily great for the body and there are healthier organic options that are plant-based out there and yeah you know that was there's other options there's other options available and even for the little ones and and my clean dirty hippie heart for our littlest ones that have failure to thrive that are not doing great with the um, infant formulas has your hospital tried to reach out to the breast milk bank? I mean, really truthfully, there's there's yeah. mothers that ha- are, there are mothers that have enough breast milk that they donate, which is just amazing to me because one of my, one of my patient's moms breastfed her little one um, for years because that was his one form of nourishment because of all the other medical conditions he had yeah. going on. She had enough milk that she also donated to a set of twins. I was like, woman. She was like, I got good boobs. Wow. I was like, oh my God, that's great. I was like, yes, yes, you do. You have you have great boobs, but like a set of twins. She could feed three children simultaneously. That's phenomenal. I more power to her. But that's, that's an option. So that's, and you know what, that's not an option that's typically in the SLPs frame of reference or wheelhouse. And I can't say we need to go to a breast milk bank. I can say, um, I have an idea. Can we reach out to your pediatrician and registered dietitian and consider this option and then go from there? So just, yes. And this, and Noonan syndrome affects more males than females. It's a, thought to affect one in 1,000 to 2,500. And this kind of goes back to what we were saying too is they talk about how Noonan syndrome is so variable in its presentation regarding like how significant and notable the symptoms are. And it said it can be often misdiagnosed and that's kind of – I feel like sometimes I get the kiddos that like come in and it doesn't, they are having just minor difficulties, I guess you would say, with their feeding or with their language or they're younger. And so they've they've done pretty well up until this point and they're having some difficulties. We're at the age where like it could have been diagnosed earlier, but, and now it seems like how have they not been diagnosed, but it has been so subtle. So there are a lot of times where these signs are very subtle. If you weren't looking for them, you wouldn't necessarily find them. And that's how it can be misdiagnosed or it can take them a little while longer to get that, that referral to genetics. So just keeping that in mind, like we're all giving you a lot of the symptoms. They're likely not going to have all of these and they might have them less severe. So just don't be afraid to speak up about it, even if it's not as severe as you would think. So I have one that I want to I want to wrap us with, and this is a little one that is um, honestly near and dear to both Aaron and I's heart. Uh, sweet baby girl was Aaron's patient before she moved, and then when Aaron moved away, because she had to move away from us, Bear and Goose were so cross. So was their mommy. <laughs> but when she moved, <laughs> you have to come back to Columbia one day. Um, she, uh, I, she transitioned the kiddo over to me and, um, one most amazing red hair you've ever seen in your entire life. Mm-hmm. And two baby girl has, um, gold syndrome, G O U L D not like 
gold, gold, but which didn't have a name when I was seeing her. Yes, exactly. At the time, it was Coal for A one slash A two, and it's named after Doctor. Doesn't roll off. Doesn't roll off the tongue. No, no, it does not. It does not. I think Mom is choked about that. It's named after the professor of research, Doctor Douglas Gold, who basically found this rare genetic condition. Well, the likelihood of either one of us ever working with another little one that has gold ever again. Probably not. It's that rare. But it's important that it's important to talk about the super rare conditions because there mm-hmm. is still opportunities for learning within within those cases. Critical thinking skills as yes. well. Yes, exactly. So baby girl was born. It was super healthy, typical pregnancy, but when she was born, she came out and she had two black eyes. And they whisked her away because they knew something was wrong right away, right? So with with this condition, basically the um, it's a small blood vessel disease. So the genetic condition, which was randomly occurring, there's no family history for this. This was just yeah. a, a this was just something that happens, right? And so um, with this condition, the small blood vessels, uh, they tend to have ongoing um, microbleeds throughout the entire body, um, may culminate in larger strokes, which oftentimes the little ones, it is, a, it is a terminal diagnosis. So let's just go ahead and like put that out there. But these, these bleeds occur because the collagen in the blood vessels and um, the cartilages, they don't, the collagen doesn't do what it is supposed to do to hold the blood vessels together and everything just kind of um, deteriorates, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better phrase. Well, and I remember too, like when I would watch her feed, she had a lot of modeling Mm -hmm. on her skin. Wait, describe modeling. So when you see your patients and it's, it's almost like you can see the vein, like it look, they're not veins, but you, it looks like there's like red and blue spots almost. Is that, am I describing it okay? And so, and you, you see it in a lot of kids that have like reduced blood flow and they're, and oftentimes they'll feel really cold. Cardiopulmonary baby. Mm -hmm. And I, and I remember, and this patient, you know, I carry her with me in my heart for so many reasons, but she taught me so much. I was a new, like a new clinician and like Michelle talks about, we don't get medical records and she didn't have a diagnosis oh, yet. We didn't so- get medical records because the early interventionist was like, don't worry, I got it. I'm sorry. Super angry, frustrating moment. Okay. <laughs> yes. So I had to talk, you know, I called the nurse and talked about what I was seeing and what I was concerned about. And there, you know, ended up having to speak with the physician and and dive deeper into what was going on. But there were, I remember specifically, like there were all these things like cataracts and we were seeing this, this modeling and we, and, and there were all these random signs that were happening. And we were like, how are these connected? Mm Mm-hmm. 
but sorry, go ahead. I just, I, there's so many things I remember so vividly, like going through this process of, of trying to figure out what was going on and, and have an answer. And I remember, and Michelle can speak to this, but this mama is just phenomenal. And I remember the day that they got the diagnosis because, and they got the diagnosis because the geneticist went to a conference and spoke on this sweet girl's case. And another geneticist stood up and said, you need to check this sequencing or do this test. And they found it and it was so rare. And the mom was like, you know what? I feel like, I forget how she phrased it exactly. And it made me cry, but she was like, we are, she is so rare. We are so lucky to have her in our lives. And I was like, this, this baby girl is just so like, so lucky to have you because not every family looks at it that way. Sorry. She like, we, as Michelle said, we, we, (laughs) we love deep. You love your patients. Uh huh. So With this condition, because of all of these little bleeds, um, there's also a significant factor for kidneys for this. And so she struggles with um, urinary tract infections, which urinary tract infection tends to trigger um, elevated temperatures, disorientation. Think of her little old ladies in a snit. And, and altered mental status, which then turns around and, and causes um, dehydration. And, and she, because of her bleeds and her motor planning, it takes her a significant time on a, on, and she's still on a bottle. We're two and a half and we're still on a bottle, but developmentally it's appropriate. Right. And right. to be fair, we have outlived our prognosis by two of the two and a half years. I go back to, um, there's the poem about um, Holland and walking through the tulip fields. Remember when you were writing your plan of cares, the plan of care that Aaron initially wrote changed when they got a diagnosis. The plan of care that I am working on has changed because of the evolution of that diagnosis. Now we have a seizure disorder, which is brought on by the ongoing bleeds. Um, We have exacerbated kidney functioning issues, which again is going on by those bleeds. So her pediatric feeding disorder presents as significant oral dysphagia, oral pharyngeal, but because because of her motor planning, it's it, it's back in there, like kind of looks like athetoid movements, like athetoid CP. However, it's a quality of life for her. So for some of these patients, you may be progressing towards, um, you might be able to write a plan of care, just like when Erin was describing with her little one that had Williams syndrome, because the hypercalcemia is typically resolved and by 12 months of age, and they're going to, the prognosis is that it will improve, right? And then that might be your Monday morning patient at 9 a.m., but then your Thursday afternoon patient at two o'clock has a neurodegenerative disease and your plan of care slowly transitions from progression to plateauing to quality of life because that's where you're at. So, I say that not to be like Debbie Downer. Also, who was the original Debbie that made Debbie Downer so down? But like, whatever. I've always wondered that. Um, also, negative Nancy. My grandma was a Nancy. She was fabulous. But I say this because we just have to 
we have to realize that with a diagnosis, those plans of cares will evolve and change, especially when you advocate for the patient to get them to a neurologist, to a geneticist, to a GI, and you get ongoing additional information. And it's okay to say to the family, I don't have the answers right now while your child to explain why your child is refusing so much PO or why they're um, regressing with this bottle skill or, you know, insert whatever it is. But you do turn around with that next breath because it is in our scope of practice to advocate and to make referrals. Say, I'm going to reach out to your pediatrician. I mean, again, have written consent um, and make make some requests because we don't have all of the answers yet. And that's critical because once you start getting the answers and you literally start connecting the dots between um, the signs and symptoms and you, and it's kind of like, it's like working backwards. You you're looking at the end result, but you've got to figure out how you got there. And then once you've determined how you got there by the addition of these conditions, like actually knowing what the condition is. Okay. Now we know the trajectory. So for that little girl that Aaron and I got, you know, we, she was an infant when we started. And I say we, because like, I mean, we've had her since she came home. Right. And she was an infant then and was just struggling to latch. And now she's got a latch, but she's, her latch is functional and we're able to take pureed foods, but we won't progress past that. And that's okay. Also, hummus is on point and baby girl loves her some hummus. Uh, and what is it? What's the grocery store that's down the street? Um, Trader Joe's. There it is. Trader Joe's had like a chocolate dessert hummus that was amazing. Yeah. Hi. Yes. Well, yeah. And it, and I think we are going to do an episode on some of those like degenerative progressive disorders and just in general, like how to write goals and how to form your plan of care. And because it is a different, I mean, advocating for insurance and, and all those factors are very different. But the thing is, is, I mean, I have a couple kiddos on my caseload right now that like their genetic syndrome doesn't have a name because it's so rare. And, and it really sometimes does take a physician either finding it or having a close connection to it to start studying it more closely. And so you're, I mean, if you're wanting, if you're in pediatric feeding disorders, if you're in it you're going to be seeing more of these kiddos that have these rare genetic syndromes and you're not going to have the answers because it's, you, you might have some information. I mean, one of the patients I treat right now has a really rare syndrome where there's one research article on it and it had, it's a case study of four, six patients and they're all so different. So there's maybe one patient in that case study that is similar to him but not that similar. And so it's, you can't, I mean, yes, go to the research, but you, you're going to have patients that you're going to really need to use critical thinking and trust your gut. And as, especially as a, like, I mean, I'm still what almost three years in 
And it's very hard sometimes because I, I, I question myself, like, I'll be like, something is wrong. And, and I feel and I'm the one that's seeing him every week. So I'm the one that's seeing it, the pediatrician, the therapist at the hospital, the physicians are like, we're not seeing it. And it is hard to be the one to be like, I think we need to run this test, or I'm concerned about this, to trust yourself when everyone else is telling you that they don't think that's what's going on. But I'd rather fight for it and be wrong than not. Yeah, I, that was a a slight soapbox, but it's, you know, you're not always going to have the exact answer and you're not always going to be able to tell families, you know, exactly what's going on. I had an email this week where I told mom, I was like, it could be a, I mean, these are the things I'm seeing. These are the differential diagnoses or specialists that I think we're going to need to see. I'm sorry that I don't have an exact answer for you right now, because I know that this is, I don't know firsthand, but I can imagine how stressful this is, but we're going to have to check a couple boxes. So I am how many years in? <laughs> I'm like, uh... and y'all, I'm learning something new every week. And that's amazing. And I think the biggest hindrance for me personally um, is when I just simply can't get a physician to make a referral. I have one little girl that I'm working with um, and we desperately need to see OT for regulation. I can't progress until I can get her centered because we're all over the place. And the pediatrician, the nurse actually called and left me a voicemail and said, he's not going to make any additional referrals until the family gets in with developmental peds. Well, developmental peds referral was made in October and there's a six to nine month wait list. So what is the thought process behind that? I don't understand. So uh, I called the doctor's office back, but of course they had closed early on a Friday. Because of course they had. So I'll call them back on Monday and say, like, seriously, for real, can we just go ahead? And I mean, I won't say seriously for real, but like, oh my goodness, seriously for real. Um, Let's go ahead and get the referral going. But if at that moment in time when you know in your heart of hearts something is not right and the physicians will not make a referral and the family knows something is not right and they cannot get the physician to make a referral, everybody is entitled to the power of a second opinion. We can change our doctors. We can change your speech pathologist. We can change whoever you need. And if you go to a geneticist and they don't think anything is wrong and they don't think that you need to make a referral, even though maybe the physician agrees and concurs and the family agrees and concurs, you can get that second opinion. But y'all, at the end of the day, having that information obtaining those diagnoses will positively impact your plan of care because all of a sudden now you know why they're modeling. Now you know why they're going apneic around a bottle. You now know why they have recurrent bouts of constipation and not wanting to eat because you have the diagnosis. So now the whole team knows how to start treating. So get these babies in. Okay. All right. Erin, did you have any anything you wanted to add, lady? I don't think so. Beautiful. All right. Oh, wait, don't forget. We're like two weeks out from the Feeding Matters Conference. So if you haven't registered yet, y'all, 
register for the Feeding Matters Conference because it is, my goodness, they have some phenomenal speakers lined up. So I would highly recommend it. And also it is Occupational Therapy Awareness Month. So huzzah, like socially distance, elbow your favorite OT. So huzzah. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.